Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. This episode is a very special conversation with veteran educator Dennis Litke, recorded on June 23, 2020. Here's your host, Dr. Gary Steger. Welcome, everyone, to my fifth Ask Me Anything session. Um, this promises to be a great discussion. I'm thrilled that you're all with us. Um, just a couple bits of housekeeping for you. Um, there will be another Ask Me Anything session um, on the 30th um, in, the, in the morning, east, the Western time, Pacific time. Um, noon Eastern with Conrad Wolfram talking about reinventing math education, computational thinking, um, and his new book, The Math Fix. And today we have as a special guest an old friend and hero of mine, Dennis Litke, someone I've been trying to get to constructing modern knowledge for the last 13 years, but he's too busy changing the world, and I'm thrilled we were able to grab him for about an hour today. Uh, Dennis's Twitter profile simply says, Radical Educator. And I, in organizing today's session, I was thinking about how, how Dennis is one of those people who doesn't, in the words of Martin Luther King, um, suffer from the drug, tranquilizing drug of gradualism. He's repeatedly, over a multi-decade career, reinvented schools, created schools, invented schools, changed our perception of what's possible, and made a lot of what people might con consider radical utopian visions of education, um, not only a reality, but successful and has managed to replicate them across the globe. He, his, his work has been primarily focused on secondary education, and in the last few years, he's been bringing those experiences to higher education and helping people rethink the college experience for non-traditional students. And so I'm really thrilled to be able to share another one of my great friends and, and mentors and inspirations. Dennis Litke with me. So welcome, Dennis. Thank you. You gave a good intro. I don't have to say anything. <laughs> Marvin Minsky used to begin his lectures by just asking any questions. Um, right. So, so I'll start in. I'll start in with some questions. And I was thinking of the sort of everything old is new again. And I remember reading about your experience early in your career in Ocean Hill, Brownsville. Um, that might be. Given the the current environment, do you have any thoughts from that experience that sort of, that are relevant to what we're dealing with today? Well, my um, thanks. Uh, my mentor there was a guy by the name of Rody McCoy, who it was my first real job out of college, and it was crazy. I was, uh, uh, you know, in a in a campus, just doing my thesis, trying to get out of school. And somebody called to come down there. And if you don't know what Ocean Hill Brownsville was, it was a place in 1968 where they tried to give, uh, take the power away from centralized New York City and give it to a black district, a Latino district, and an Asian district. And uh, Rody McCoy was the head of the black district called Ocean Hill Brownsville. And he immediately transferred 17 teachers that happened to be white and Jewish. The teachers union was white and Jewish. It closed down New York City. Kids didn't go to school for three months. And uh, 
I came after the strike because programs were falling apart. And they always talk about your first job. This was a man, uh, Rody McCoy, who wasn't afraid to die for his cause. I am. But just think about that. You can do anything, right? If you're not, you know, I'm not afraid to get fired. That's why everyone tries to fire me. But um, he wasn't afraid to die. So he did whatever he needed to do. And he actually died two months ago. Uh, they did a three quarters of a full page obituary in the New York Times. And one of the things he said, and it's very relevant to today, he said, it's not enough to give a person, I, I, I'll screw up the quote, but it's not enough to give a person the power, but it's really the tools to use that power. So, or the ability to use that power. So, you know, so much of what's going on, okay, we'll put a few more black people in this position, a few more here, but it doesn't do anything. They made him head. He finally said, I got control. He took control and they closed the city down. So it's a good lesson, I think, uh, for me and all of us uh, on what we have to fight for. So that's, I was 25 years old, man. Uh, and that's where I got my uh, awakening to the world. Was that your first teaching job? That was my first, yeah. I'm a psychologist by training, actually. So that was my first uh, real job in that way. And then you, you, the, your other adventure eventually took you to to New Hampshire, to, to Thayer High School, which was another interesting um, <laughs> battle. Yeah. What he, what he meant to say is they tried to fire me there also. So I, I went from Ocean Hill, Brownsville um, to uh, what the city did is they gerrymandered the districts so that there was no more Ocean Hill, Brownsville, and the guy lost their job. I went out to Stony Brook University and got to set up my own teacher training program. I knew just being in the college wasn't for me. I was training people in the schools. A new school was opening. I raised my hand. I had a PhD, but not uh, principal certification. Uh, somehow I got the job, and then they tried to fire me because I brought in 25 fairly radical people from around the country, and they weren't ready for it. But I won that. and. There was a book written called uh, uh, something like four, four Successful Middle Schools. So it was a great school. I started an advisory system in 1972. People are still saying, what the hell is that? You know, we had internships, 1972. We had small schools. And then I, um, uh, I did that for six years. And I do this thing where... Um, I, I only have on and off. I got nothing in the middle. So um, I work 80 to 100 hours. That's what I do. I try to make sure I get to an island over Christmas time um, or go someplace. There's my man, Jose, with his college unbound shirt. All right. Um, and so after working 10 years, every second of my life, I bought a little cabin in the woods. So... I headed up to the woods and did my first retirement at 35. And uh, I was much braver then. I used my all my TIA prep. You're supposed to keep that till, till you get old, right? I 
use that. I lived in a cabin that um, uh, no electricity, no water. Uh, then I somebody somebody needs to turn off their Zoom. I mean their uh, mic. Their mic. Um, so I did that until my money ran out, and I had become very involved in my community, which is the poorest community in New Hampshire, as Gary knows, Winchester, New Hampshire. I actually won. I ran for state legislator and won. The state legislator in New Hampshire was set up for old men that didn't have to work because they paid you a hundred bucks in car fare. Um, and uh, then they fired the high school principal and I applied and I got it by default. Uh, the other two people that they wanted wouldn't take the job. It was uh, a, a $22,000 pay cut for me from New York to New Hampshire. But I took it. We did well. About six years in, they tried to fight. And it did the opposite. It kind of made me famous because um, Michael Tucker from L.A. Law played me in a movie on NBC. It's, uh, I think you can go to the Met YouTube and you can get it. Um, and I stayed because it pulled the community together. I stayed there for 14 years. Uh, some of you are old enough to know Ted Sizer. I was the first school in the Coalition of Essential Schools. Ted was at Brown, um, got me to come down here to Brown. I didn't want to, if you run schools, you shouldn't run it from an elite college on the hill. Excuse me if I'm insulting anybody. And uh, then my partner, Elliot, and I were asked if we could set up a school. And I was older then. And I'd done a bunch of schools. I said, only if I could do it exactly how I want. And we have probably the most progressive commissioner around. And he said, yes. So that meant I had to do it. And that's when we, I really, Elliot and I closed our eyes and said, if we didn't know there was such a thing as school, what would it be? And it was, our mantra was one student at a time. Our mantra was find your passion. Our mantra was put you out in the community. Our state was our uh, campus really and we started with 50 kids and uh, um, no regular classes just do a learning plan figure out what you got and and when the first class went to graduate we added 50 kids every year uh, we had a 98 percent attendance rate the city had a 74 attendance rate we had a 97 graduation rate the city had a 46 percent grade and we took all the tough kids and that's when old Bill Gates sent his top man down to us. Hey, there's President Carruthers there. All right, I know some people here. And uh, hello, Bob. And uh, sorry, I'm a little ADD, as you can see. Um, and uh, what happened is he fell in love with our kids and said, Dennis, Elliot, here's $5 million. Give me 10 of these after being there for an hour and a half, which is pretty wild. Never happened again, unfortunately. And uh, so we started setting up schools around the country. And that lasted about 10 years. But now we have 75 schools in the U.S. and a little over 100 around the country. And then 10 years ago, uh, that was going pretty well. And Elliot and I turned it over to two other people. We're still involved in it. And uh, we started College Unbound. And eventually became a college for um, 
unrepresented, underserved adults who said they weren't going back to school uh, to sit next to an 18-year-old and uh, they couldn't go to school at 2 in the afternoon and the curriculum wasn't relevant and we used the same philosophy, set up a program. I'll shut up in a second. But uh, um, all of a sudden we started getting uh, lots of people and we were we were connected with other colleges because you can't just say you're a college. And then we went through the struggle of getting accreditation. And uh, I brought in a, uh, a the former president of University of Rhode Island who's on this, who helped us both figure out how to do this and give us credibility. Um, so I only wear T-shirts that say passion, growth, and no bull. Um, and we're going. We're on the 10th year, and we're doing well. So that's my life. Bye-bye. No, just kidding. So, <laughs> so, it's, been so let's, very, let's... it's been very exciting. And my next job, when I get old, will be starting a nursing home. You know, you know, you know what Seymour Saracen was doing before he, at the time of his death, right? Yeah, he was, uh, he was in a nursing home and writing how screwed up they were <laughs> while he was there. Yeah, he was writing an explosive expose on nursing homes yeah. while in one. Yeah. So, yeah. And you, about... wonder, you wonder why he died there. Just kidding. <laughs> Noah, I, people don't tend to get out. Um, so can we go back, before we get into some details on College Unbound, it'd be useful for, for the audience to have a better sense of what happens in a big picture school, or what happens at the Met, what the week looks like, what the day looks like. Tell us a little bit about the structure. So also, um, just to bring it to the end first, is that, I just looked at the attendance. Our attendance went up 2% during COVID online. And it went up 2% from like 93 to 95 because we had developed relationships. So when people went online, they wanted to see their buddy. They wanted to see their teacher. And we didn't have stupid, like, here's math for an hour, here's science for an hour. Uh, we could say, what's at home? You're teaching your younger brother? Let me build a curriculum around. You're living with your grandma, this is your chance to interview her. You can still work your internship online, go for it. So we're a school set up. Um, every student is in an advisory of 16 students. They have one teacher that's a generalist. Uh, we're a public school um, that follows them through for four years. Every kid has a learning plan and we try to help them find their passion. And, of course, they don't know what it is or their interest in ninth grade. So we play and they say, you know, I always wanted to be a teacher my whole life. Can I go back and work with my fourth grade teacher? So two days a week, the kids are all out. They don't even come to school during an internship. So this little girl goes out to be a teacher. She's very excited. She comes back a month later and says, I hate kids. And I was just happy that she discovered that at 14, not at 24, you know? And then she says, well, I think I like computer. And then she tried that and said, no, it's boring. And then she finally came around to, I've always wanted to be a dancer, but I never thought I could. And so it's not to give the kids a profession, it's to find something they love. So they come to school and they do that two days a week. And the other three days, they do projects connected to that. So 
somebody working at the zoo is working on a research project. And then that kid was presenting to all the, the researchers at the house, at the, the zoo. So it becomes real. It's about real work. And you don't have to make up stuff. Um, we're not playing school. We do real school. And there's this famous psychologist, Chicksamahai, who I love, in a book um, where he talks about um, what makes an adult learner a great learner. He says you can study anything, just study it deeply. And we do the opposite in our country. We do a little of this, a little of that. So, so Monday, kids come in. They start at 9, not at 8, because kids' brains don't work at 8. There's been research for that for 50 years, but people seem to discover it every year. Teachers come in. They have some time. 9 o'clock, we all gather together and have like what we call a pick-me-up, where kids present stuff, and they gather together. Um, and then they go to this advisory, where they may talk about, uh, you know, if we were in school now, they'd be talking about Black Lives Matter. And one of my 10th graders just led the biggest march here in in Providence last week. So we're very proud. And then they go off and do their stuff. And so some take college courses, some are interested in poetry. They're interviewing a poet. Uh, some are writing a report. And the teacher moves around. They all have lunch like at noon. Then at 2.30, they get back together. We don't assign particular homework, but Chris has is doing a report for the zoo. So that's his work. Somebody else is doing something else. And I always brought students to a board meeting and um, uh, one of my students was being questioned about homework. And uh, he said, wait a minute. I was up till two o'clock last night doing work and no one assigned it to me. That's what you want. Okay. And my t-shirt, um, every nine weeks, the students both in the college and in the high school stand up and talk for a half hour 45 minutes in front of their parents their colleagues their you know their their other students and all i ask for is to show me passion to show me your growth and don't bullshit me because i read everything you read you know and uh that's what we do in the college and people are they come in just to get their ba degree and they leave being transformed in some sort of way because learning's about them and what they want to do. So, and, and right. you've got and you've got the results to back it up, right? There's evidence that this is effective. Yeah. So the interest. I mean, we're graduating close to eighty percent of our college students who have been out of school dropped out of school two, three times, and the adult number is somewhere around fifteen percent. Uh, graduation, so we do a pretty good job. But they stay there because they're not doing stupid random courses, you know? There was, they're doing something they care about. So there was a, um, a student who lost her child at a very young age, and right after she was born, and never got to process it. And this was 10 years later. So her project was, I'm gonna process this, I'm going to do a church ceremony around it, and I'm going to study her disease and start a foundation. So I remember one day when I was sitting in my office talking to somebody, she's watching, walking the track. She wasn't dropping out of school. That was her, that was, that was something that meant a lot to her. It wasn't somebody else's course. So um, that's the beauty. If you find the interest 
and you make it real and you support that. Our adults are so talented, it's pretty amazing. So can you can you give us a couple examples of some of your favorite internships that kids did in at the Met or in the big picture schools? I promise um, all the stuff, but I want to get make sure people have a really good picture of what happened. Well, uh, they're everywhere. So we started and everyone said in a little Rhode Island that we couldn't get enough people to take our kids. And we got 50 and they said, well, you can't get 100. And we got 100. We have a database mentors. of mentors. We have a database of close to 5,000 mentors. So mentoring is easier than being a parent. You get to go home at night. So, and you have a kid looking up to you. So it's been, you know, not everyone's great at it, but we don't just put a kid out there. We figure out what that student needs to learn and how we work with the mentor. So they're not just filing, but they're doing something important work. We had a girl writing grants. They, it was a small nonprofit. So she ended up writing a grant. She was 16 years old and brought in like $120,000. Uh, one of my favorite stories, we had these two kids, and this was probably 20 years ago. So um, the older people had to learn the computer where the younger kids grew up on it, natives versus uh, uh, computer uh, from the outside. And we had these two kids working with these um, uh, two, two PhDs from Brown working in the computer business. And I remember the day, it was a Wednesday, they came to school and they couldn't figure something out. And they came to get our 14 year old out of class to help them. So it's that kind of thing, you know, and they work as another kid that was kind of not interested in anything. And then I ran into a friend who said her grandfather uh, made worked on boats and was very depressed, very old. We hooked them together. Uh, the grandfather became alive because he had a kid that was interested. The kid became alive, and now he works on the America's Cup. He's on the boat in case shit happens while you're out there. So, um, so it's you know they're in everything from auto mechanics to translators to lawyers to uh, uh, to a Zen center where a kid would get on a, a train every day and go to Boston and learn. Uh, how to run a Zen center. So, uh, so it's pretty wild. And once they do real stuff, and it's not like you do that, now let's come back to your other stuff. It's what did they need at your business? What do you need to learn? So that's all. And it's, and, and it's all, and it's all considered college prep, the Zen, the right to give kids options, no matter where they want to go afterwards. That's it, right. It's and, and we've been pretty, what happens when you get students excited about learning, they want to keep going on learning. So it's been pretty exciting with the number of kids who want to go off to college and pretty exciting, although still not a high enough percent with the kids that are making it through. But uh, um, someone can ask a question, then I'll turn to the college a little bit. Okay. So I, the, um, I remember what a couple of kids that I interacted with, I remember there were kids who, had had done internships with the, the state attorney general's office, and kids were working in neonatal intensive care units. Um, but I had two specific memories of of encountering some of your kids. Um, I remember one or two that who I I said, "Hey, I just saw this 
Harry Belafonte documentary I, I think you guys would love based on something they had spoken about. And they turned to me and they said, we're in the Harry Belafonte documentary you just saw. Um, and, and, and there was one kid I remember you brought to the coalition conference who, who talked about being bullied for his sexual orientation and running away from school, terrorized and swearing he was never going to go back. And he found, he found your, your school and was being successful and expressed interest in fashion design. And he was running a, running a business, making couture gowns for Barbie. And I I, I was, You, you ready for this? Not only do I remember that, but the kid is now a fashion designer and just did Lady Gaga's, which was his idol, her corset for the big concert she just had. I got pictures of it some way. Troy Allen. It, it, was, it was inevitable. I mean, I saw not only the kid's skill and passion, but what really moved me besides his story was the standing ovation he got from other kids. And and how how in, in another in another setting those kids who are who, who you know whooping and hollering for him and giving him a standing ovation might have been victimizing. Him. Yeah, and it's and really I, it, it it really is the kind of the most open supportive uh, place I've ever seen, which is incredible. You know, we've had cases where kids turn from a boy to a girl in the middle of the year that would be hard for me at any time. And the kids just adjusted to it. That's who it was, you know? And it was a beautiful thing. And uh, the one student at a time, and they're not the same cliques, and everyone's good at something, you know? And, so, and, your, and your campuses don't get vandalized, and, they, and yeah. there's no cops in the halls. We're the only school in Providence, only high school without a policeman. Um, we're in the middle of, like every other city, trying to move police out of schools. We don't have one. We have a community member. So, um, so. And the other powerful idea that I, I learned from, from this work is that the kids develop social capital. Yeah. Right. Could, could you share a little bit more about that idea? Uh, well, what usually happens in the school, you're locked up and you know your six teachers and that's it. Okay. So now... Our kids are having internships. They go to conferences with their with um, their mentor. They're meeting ten people at a business every year. Um, they're going to meetings with them. So they just become such broader human beings. The good news is we have hundreds of visitors a year, so they really get used to talking to people and learning from them. And you know, although it's overused, they really become lifelong learners. You know. Um, and they make connections. You know, we're a little bit in the book. There's a book out a year ago. I forget what it's called, but it's like, not what you know, but who you know. And what happens, if you're with a kid from ninth grade to 12th grade, you're with them forever. Our people are still getting calls from their kids who are 35 years old. Okay? So that that's also social capital. You know, you're of a different kind. All our kids have social capital in their own community, and we've broadened that that out. So, well, and it's what it's what rich kids have through legacy, and through, you know, their parents get them a job, or yeah, the parent the parents hook them up, right? Right, right. And uh, so that's great. So, 
someone asked me a question, I'll take a break. Okay, so so let's 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 make the transition really quickly to, to College Unbound, and you tell us what it looks like there. But I remember being stunned by the statistics you shared about of the of the kids of color who make it to college, what the graduation rate is. Yeah. So in the country, our kids do pretty well, but it's not kids of color. It's a low in the bot in the bottom quartile. Kids who graduate from high school and go to college, the stat I've seen, and I, I almost can't believe it every time I see it, is 89% oh, drop up. Can you believe that? And what, percentage makes, it to, and what percentage makes it there in the first place? Yeah, that's the point. If you start, you know, there's that stat with what kids start, who graduates high school, who graduates, you know. It's, it's like nothing. So it was at that time that I started thinking, um, we can do better than that. That's pretty bad, man. And uh, we started with 18-year-olds. It took some kids, uh, Adam Bush and myself, took some kids from uh, my high schools around the country. We got a house across the street. We did a partnership with a college who wanted to have more kids of color, so they allowed us to do the curriculum. And then we started having older people coming to us and saying, what about us, man? We can't get back in. I dropped out when I'm 19. I can't move anywhere. And uh, that's when I put a little thing in Facebook that said, if you left college and want to come, want to start again, come to the Met at 7 o'clock. And we had 78 people, I'll never forget that night, kind of yelling and screaming, we need something. And that's when we morphed into a college for adults. And we partnered with a college for adults. And then we knew the curriculum everywhere we went was not very relevant, like most high school or college curriculum. And uh, so that's when we went through the accreditation process. And no one thought we could do it in Rhode Island. And we did it. And no one thought we could do it with the regional accreditation. And we're doing it. No one thought we could get financial aid for our students. We did it. So it's been a 10-year long haul, but very exciting. And, uh, again, it's built around um, we try to give people credit for prior learning experience. We give credit, you know, if, you're, if somebody was coming on saying there's this cool guy we're going to listen to, they could write it up, read my book, and they could get credit for it. You know, learning's out there in the public. Let's get credit for it. These people are 35 years old and are so smart. You know, sometimes we have, um, I don't want to knock them, but like seniors from Providence College, but we have faculty from all the different colleges. And they come and they say, oh, my gosh. They say, all we've been doing is answering the professor what he wanted. The professor says, do this paper. We do it. We don't have this kind of experience. So it's such a contract. You know, to, to be able to uh, help teach people who have lived a good life and want to move up and to teach it in a way where they can learn that helps them grow. So that's so what it is. So and what's the structure we're like? we're going to go all around the country again. So if you want a college unbound in your city, you write to me. That will happen one of these days. So what's so what happens when what what so what's their experience like? What what do they, you know? Flesh it out for us a little bit. So, we built a school for working adults, 
And we studied the research and we talked enough people. Taking one course at a time, you'll be 100 before you get your bachelor's degree. An associate's really not enough in this day and age unless you have a particular skill. We know you can't be out. You've got kids at home. So we built a program where people were out one night a week for three hours. They arrive, there's daycare, there's food. They're in a cohort, so they become very close to a group. So when one student wants to drop out, somebody says, you only got two kids at home, and I got four kids. Stay right where you are. <laughs> or they go to that person's house and say, come on, I know you're depressed, but come on back. Uh, and so one night a week, they have a lab, and they have a faculty that's on the ground, kind of like our high school advisor. And then they have a couple other courses that they take online or some can take on the weekend if they want to spend another time. And they all have a project. So they're all building uh, better care for the elderly in their community. Um, they're doing something for the job they're working at. Uh, some woman built a, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, I just forget. So they do something that they love to do. And the idea of the courses are, to give them the tools to be better at what they do. So it's, uh, we say we go online to get offline. You go online not to memorize stuff, but to use that tool to help you better uh, be a better researcher. So we have a writing for change. We have, we have one major organizational leadership and change. We tell people it don't matter what you get to your bachelor's degree, you just need one in order to move up. And that's shown pretty, uh, uh, pretty much. We didn't think people would be going on to graduate school. All of a sudden, we got 30% of our people say, I like learning. So <laughs> it was after 20 years that they didn't think they were deserving of going back to get a bachelor. And now they're getting a master's at Brown or a master's at Providence College. So it's been a pretty exciting venture. So, you know, and in that group, they become very close. That's their support. We surround them with a lot of supports. When COVID-19 hit, you know, we delivered computers to people's houses. We still deliver food. Jose, if he's still in, delivers food every week to them. And we're trying to figure out how to make it easy for adults to move up and move out of poverty. Um, so it's both for transformation of who you are and of your job. And, you know, we don't, we don't have that many graduates yet, but... Um, about 80% have moved up in their job or moved to another better job. So it's working. How and many graduates? So, How many graduates? Uh, we've had about 120 now. <laughs> so so that's, not, that's not too shabby. And how many students are enrolled? So we had last, last year 120 and about 170 this summer. Um, and somewhere between... 100, 200 next year. We'll see how COVID uh, makes uh, people long, respond. How long does it typically take them to earn a degree? Uh, average about two and a half years. It's like any program. It's a year for a year. So to get a degree, it's 120 credits. So if you come in with 90, you're out in a year. If you come out in with 60, we'll probably get you out in a year and a half once we give you credit for other things you've done. So we take people's credit. If you come in with nine credits, it's going to take you three years. So it varies. And, and, and how I, fast. You know, the thing I, I was thinking about, 
one of the other experiences I had or things I, I'd learned from you was um, the attention to detail, how much the little stuff, the humane touches matter. And I remember you talking about how kids who were the first generation going to college were often um, unintentionally sabotaged by, by their parents who mourned their absence, who had the best of intentions. But if a kid called mm-hmm. and said, I have the sniffles or this is hard, the, the mother might say, hey, come, on, you know, come home, honey. And that you right. were having rituals and events to help the, the parents constructively deal with, with their feelings of grief and, and yeah. loss while their kids were we had, uh, We ran something called the Empty Nest Group. So many of our kids that went off to college were the oldest in the family. They were the closest to mom and then left them. And so we'd bring all the people together and they'd start sharing how they missed. And part of it was when I called my mom and said, college sucks, she hung up on me. <laughs> These parents go, come on home, honey. I knew college wasn't right for you. Um, so it was training the parents to stay strong and in the long run, and the kids. You know, we had kids who, you know, brother got shot, put in jail. Right before finals, he went home. And you, you got to try to help say you have to be home, but it's also long-term. If you finish school, you have that much better of a shot of helping your family. So it's back and forth. And what's going on now, we just applied for a grant today. It's multi-generational. You know, it's like when kids see mom go, or dad going back to school, that changes them. When a mom brings her 11-year-old kid to class, and the kid knows mom worked all day, picked her up at school, excuse me, came to class, doing the homework. Do you think that kid's not going to go to college, man? Or the other story a parent told me, her kid lived near a college and near a private school. And the kid used to walk past the private school where all the kids wear the white shirts and blue skirts or pants. And she would tell her mom, I want to go to LaSalle when I grow up. And then once your mother started college um, and Rhode Island College was there, she said, Mom, I want to go to Rhode Island College. So we have no idea that influence. And probably half our people come back because they want to do better. Half our people come back and they say, how can I push my child to go to college if I never finish? Okay. So um, it's very exciting. We also work inside the prison. And we try to help. We have a gateway class as, as people, the formerly incarcerated, come out. How do we help them adjust back into the world and then sign up for our program? You know, uh, iPhones only 11 years ago, man. You have people getting out uh, that don't know what an iPhone is. I had one student, you know, I, I assume this everywhere. There's a computer on buses now saying turning left, turning right. I had a guy jump off a bus. He got scared, didn't know where it was coming from. So we have a great gateway class, which moves the students back in. And, uh, you know, we're just out there doing what we can do. And when the kids, either in the high schools or in College Unbound, they're, they're able to use the local universities and colleges as a resource, right? They, as uh, yeah. To traditional I mean, yeah, I mean, our high school kids all take college classes. And it makes their transcript not look so kooky. 
because they got an A in sociology and then they figure they must be smart even though they can't understand it. Um, in high school, I do what I call my fake transcript. I make it look like any other transcript, uh, even though the students get narratives. In the college, our students get narratives. They get a write-up on what they've done, how they're doing, and obviously they can get into uh, graduate school. So um, the other thing is we have something at the college called the Big Ten. And everyone says they teach problem solving, they teach collaboration, they do, it's all bullshit, they don't, okay? And we make it that we have those 10 qualities from resilience to creativity that I said, and that's what they get evaluated on. So when they're standing up to give their exhibition, that's why there's the no bull on my, they're not repeating what they read in a book, they're showing how that was applied how they collaborated, how they solved the problem. And they can also get credit. They have to do a portfolio and to show how they've been competent in each one of those areas. So we're trying to be as real as possible. We know people just look at a BA and think, well, you suffered through it, you got it. Um, but we're trying to make it real that they really have skills. That's fantastic. I, you know, your your mother hung up on you. I called. I was away at college, twenty four hours. Called home to check in, and said, "Where's dad?" And my mother said, "He's in his office." And then it occurred to me, twenty four hours earlier, we didn't have an office in the house. Um, right. <laughs> I no longer had a bedroom. <laughs> um, right. So I didn't know you so, knew my mom, Gary. That's nice. <laughs> I think yeah, there's a common uh, heritage. So. Yeah. I, I want to throw this open to everybody. We've got a couple couple images just to put up um, for further information. Sylvia's going to do that as I over-talk you. Um, if you can, raise your hand. We'll try that. If you want more information on Dennis and his work, we have a website up at inventalearn.com slash Lidkey, where you can find links and his bio and his books. Um, and if you'd like to make a contribution to help be able to sustain these, these sessions, um, I've got a virtual tip jar at paypal.me slash Gary Steger. So if you've got a question, um, raise your hand. We'll look for, for your hand being up. We'll unmute you. And, and I really appreciate this opportunity that Dennis has provided for you to, to interact with him. So who's got the first I question? I want to hear what the dog has. I want to hear what Lisa's dog has to <laughs> Someone? Hand up. Hi. Okay. Uh, I don't have my virtual hand up, physical hand. Okay. Um, Dennis, I would love if... Who are you? Oh, I'm Lisa Nielsen in New York City. I went to the Met. I had an amazing time. It was my maybe one of my favorite days of my life. You were there. So that means I'm not full of shit, right? No. You're the most incredible, like, one of the most incredible educators I've met. Um, and my dog just got groomed, so thank you for noticing him. But I would love, I mean, Gary said everything old is new again. I would love if we have an article or something where we can help, where we can share why this is the model in the time of this pandemic, in the time of digital education, and the time of the remote learning, so that I could share it with senior leadership, because they often don't respect those who are right in-house, but they respect those from the outside. And in the past, as you probably know, we have had big picture learning schools. We have embraced this model, but with accountability and whatnot, it hasn't been 
adopted uh, lately. So I'd yeah. love some fresh information that I could share. And so would my dog. And you're in New York, Lisa? Yeah, New York City Department of Education. Okay. So um, partly um, people could write to me also directly. Send the money to Gary, but you can send emails to me, um, which is dlicky at collegeunbound.org. And I can follow up a little better because I don't really know who you guys are. Like, I, I can't exactly read your last name, Lisa. So, um, so do that. Um, one, one way that I've had people do in schools is to um, take my book that's got big print so it's easy to read. It's got <laughs> a lot of pictures. And I even have questions at the end so professors don't have to do any work. But could maybe use it as a book study. Not to say this is it, but as a conversation starter. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? The other thing, Gary, I will send to you, we usually have every summer a um, some we call Big Bang, where people come together uh, to learn about big picture. But we're doing it virtually for about three weeks. And I will, uh, Gary, do you have all these people's information? Yep. Yeah, I can send anything you send me. So I will send Absolutely. a link. Um, I'm doing one on, on uh, uh, people who want to either teach with us, because you can teach with us from a distance if you have a passion. And, you know, we have teachers in New Orleans, teachers in California. Um, that's one thing. Uh, my little cabin I went to in, that, I, that I lived in New Hampshire, I've turned into a retreat center. So I'm going to try to do it from the middle of the woods. So I'll send that also. So anybody, if you want stuff, send me an email and I will respond. And the first few, I'll send you a free book. Woohoo! <laughs> one of my, one of my jazz musician idols and friends, um, Jimmy Heath was fond of saying, what was good is good. Yeah. I, I, I often think that the first thing we need to do in education is find the cure for amnesia. You know, the people who say, we don't know what to do, and if only we knew what to do, and, you know, I, you see the books behind me, I've got 10 times this number that, that yeah. describe exactly what's doable and what you can and should do. And the big picture book is fabulous. The other book that was written about then is called Doc, and there's a link in the, the link that I sent you reads like a thriller because you went quickly through the story but dennis tells the story in, in 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 great detail about how he turned around this troubling high school got all sorts of acclaim and funding for it turned it around and then there was a school board election some new board members were elected and he got fired and and for people who don't understand the politics of public education that's a great study uh, book study as well yeah to, to recognize that I like to say bad ideas are timeless and, and, and they transcend geographic boundaries, but good ideas are incredibly fragile and need to be nurtured and cared for. Yeah. yeah. Okay, next question. Thank you, Lisa. What's your dog's name? Otto, oh, I've never seen. You can friend him on Facebook. All right, very good. I'll That's put what it I want to do. Chat. All right, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's what you want to do. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Who's got a hand up? Well, is that too boring? No questions? No questions? Let's, let's, 
we'll, we'll simplify. We'll unmute everyone. So if you want to say something, um, speak like. up. How can this anyone? be transferred to elementary school? Who's, who's talking to me? Wendy. Wendy. I'm trying to see where you are, Wendy. He's waving. There you are. I got you. Um, so we have some elementary schools in the network. Um, you know, you don't send a second grader on a bus out to an internship. Um, but my first school was a middle school where we took groups of kids to nursing homes, to certain places. So it, it's really the key philosophy is listening to the student. Um, of course, in the younger ages, if they're not learning to read and write and to understand some sort of mathematics, they're not going anywhere. So obviously that's important. Um, but it's really trying to get them excited about learning and follow uh, follow their passion, whatever that means. You know, I just saw one of my students uh, got highlighted in the paper uh, for all the cool things she did in her uh, beauty salon. And I remember her as a ninth grader when you said, when we said, what do you want to do or be? She wanted to be a princess. And so rather than laughing, you know, we built around that. So if a second grader says, I want to be a princess, go for it. What does that mean? You know, it's about, you can study anything. So it's about just getting people excited. Uh, you know, uh, Gary had talked about meeting one of our students who saw something. One of my students uh, was going to India to work uh, against the, uh, to get involved in the sex trade, to stop the sex trade business. She watched Slumdog Millionaire got moved, raised $2,000, took your advisor, and went and spent a month in India. You know, and that's, that's what you're teaching. You know, and you can start doing that. The kids have it. We take it out of them. You know, by about fourth grade, they start losing that and following our orders. So, that's And there's a, you know, there's a lot of talk about kids doing real-world activities, you know, at, at the lower grades. And and I think we do serious violence to childhood and disrespect the kids when we don't think that you can be a princess or a fireman, or we don't take that legitimately. And we st instead say that first graders are going to spend 15 minutes and eradicate famine or you know fix climate change. Um, that that if you're seven, that that dinosaur you build out of pop tart boxes is real world. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just as you've taken the, the, your experience at the secondary level and moved it into higher ed, everything you're saying and describing is, is consistent with the work of the Reggio Emilia approach and what folks are doing yeah. with, with, with infants and toddlers in, in places. Yeah. So, so it can be done. It's just different, you know. As I said, I'll be doing it with old folks one day, you know. So, so the question I just got handed is, can you change a traditional school or do you have to start from scratch? If you can, what's the first thing to do? You want the bullshit answer or the real answer? Real. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It, it's so hard to do a school like this when you even start from scratch, okay? Because you have to have enough people that really believe in the philosophy, and then it's not just believing, but you got to carry it out. It's too easy to... When the kids get a little wild, to just fall back in some way. So, um, 
I don't suggest people try to turn around the school. It's too hard. No one's been successful with it, turning it around to anything, kind of. Um, I have seen some things semi-successful where you start a school within a school. Um, the problem with that is soon everybody will be pissed at you because you're different. And they'll make you come back to the center. So, I mean, part of my encouragement to people is if you're in an environment that's not good, get out and take a risk. Uh, I talked to a, I was speaking to a PhD class the other day, and, you know, I was telling people, don't get caught into being in a job that 20 years later you're sad you were in it. You know, is how can you be bold? How can you be brave? and get in the right place. Now, I know I don't have a family to worry about, et cetera, so I know it's hard. you got to have money coming in, da-da-da-da, but really there's nothing more important than being happy in what you're doing. you live longer that way. So um, so sorry for the discouraging news. Well, I, I need you to help me figure out how to do this because I've got ideas. That, uh, the, 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 the funding of startup has always been challenging for me, but in any event. Yeah. Um, other questions? Uh, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Lickey, you mentioned, this is Janice. I'm in Houston. Hi, I'm Janice. In Houston. Hi. You mentioned uh, schools within a school. That was the um, solution that was tried in Houston in terms of integrating schools. And in fact, it created a kind of haves and haves not situation yeah. within the school. How would you? Uh, suggest mitigating that. I mean, that my son went to a high school that was like that, and they referred to the neighborhood kids as the downstairs children. Yeah. The students referred to them like that. Yeah. Well, that's part of what I was saying. It's not good. Um, <laughs> the only way, what I, two of my schools, I got to start from scratch, or many of them. Uh, but one, I took over a down-and-out school in New Hampshire. And what I said was, we're all going there, but we don't all have to go there today. So who are the first teachers who want to who do this? Mm -hmm. So they couldn't beat them up too much because they know it was going to be them eventually. And they knew it was a four-year process, so people wanted out, got out before it was too late for them. So. The only way I think it works is if you make a commitment that the whole school is going there, you know, um, or, yeah, that's the only thing I can say. That's why they don't work. They get, oh, those are the druggies, or those are the neighborhood kids, or those are, and then, and then it's hard to overcome. So your point's well taken. In L.A., they put them in different uniforms so that they could form gangs. They made little tribes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, geniuses. Any other questions? We'll go about five more minutes. Give me two more good ones. Is there a role for librarians in your own schools? That's a good question. Who asked that? So, David. Uh, Dave Lurcher, professor at San Jose David? State University in California. He doesn't have his picture up. He just has his name up. So yeah. No video. So I'm going to show David a picture. Okay. This is one of my favorites. 
for you older yeah. people, 1968, the Olympics. It has David. Changed. He's holding up. He's holding up the 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 medalists in track and field with their their hands. That up. were both at San Jose, and they were both thrown out of San Jose. Do I have it right, David? And now there's a statue for them there that I went to visit, honoring them. Is that right, David? You're right. It's still on campus, still right the center. That's 30 goddamn years after they threw them out, though. So um, this is my other prize. I'm waiting to be sued <laughs> rather than just do it. He sue says do it just. So, so David, I'm just stalling because the answer is no. Um, uh, it, it's really not a no or a yes, but I try to put everybody is directly involved with a group of students, okay? So I've had schools with librarians, um, you know, and helped that whole process. The world's changed a bit now with all kinds of ways to get resources. And so I use that position as not a specialist position. But um, I ask everyone to be a librarian in a way. So I am sorry, and I'm glad I can't see you. So you're making a face at me. <laughs> if you haven't seen the film Salute, Dennis, you should. It's about the, the white Australian who was on the platform with them. No, I, I know that story well. Yeah. He got ostracized also. Oh, so. yeah, ruined his life. Yeah, ruined yeah. his life. Yeah. Um, One more good right. question. One more yeah, that I can question. answer better than David's. I have a question from New Zealand. Yes. New Zealand. Um, yeah, mate. Uh, love your work, by the way, Dennis. Love the book. Uh, been there, done that. Bought the T-shirt. Um, my question is, I've I got no subjects. I've got a middle school. The subjects are gone. What a waste of time. Um, however, uh, I have new New Zealanders. These are people from all over the world, uh, Mumbai, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Afghanistan, you name it. Yeah. Um, you don't teach science at your school, you know, and we, we embrace the essence of science and, and, and we develop passion projects around science, but they're leaving my middle school and heading off to the examinations that they have to do, you know, the exams that get yep. them in the uni. Um, and I really struggle with uh, trying to give people to understand the big picture of education and that... Um, just because we don't go to science subjects because you're not going to learn the periodic table. Um, yeah. I'm like, but, but how do we build a culture that, of their understanding? Uh, you know, like, you can lead a horse to water, but, but how do we change the uh, a parental culture of understanding? This is, a, this is just a public school. Anyone could walk in and come here. It's no private, yeah. no clutter. You know? Yeah, not easy. Not, none of this is easy. Yeah. Um, and you know, we, Big Picture does some work in New Zealand. You know that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you know, what I say is we try to teach kids to think like a scientist, think like a historian. Um, and every place has to work out because of your exams what that means. You can't screw kids by saying we're going to do it this way and then you're going to fail the exam. Mm -hmm. One of our schools, Lisa, in New York City, um, you know, was hesitant, hesitant, and they finally said, we can teach the regents a quarter of the time and do big picture three quarters of the time. So you got to figure out, you know, we have to play where we live, right? So, you know, how do you teach to that exam so the kids can move on? But how do you get them 
to be scientists, think like scientists. I mean, most college science teachers say when kids come to their class, they're past what they learn by the third week of their college class. Yeah. So they'd rather have them be motivated and excited about science rather than to memorize shit that don't matter anymore. Yeah. So. Then, then one, one more question. Someone named Kristen's got a question. Kristen, speak up. Are you, I, it's Christine. I think oh, sorry, Christine. I, I, I got handed a bad post-it note. I'm sorry. Okay. I only want to talk to Kristen, but okay, go on. Okay. Now, I just wanted to comment about the librarian, so go find Kristen. No, no, that was a joke. That was a joke. I know. I know. That, that might be um, No, I just wanted to say that as a librarian at an alternative school, I pretty much did all the things you've been sitting here talking about at an alternative right. high school. I did it for years with kids, found them internships, found them mentors found ways to teach them the very basics of the test that I knew they were going to get. I mean, what project do you really want to do? What do you really want to learn? Um, a lot of those kids are in healthcare in our community. When working the COVID shifts, um, I have a guy that, that established a, a carpet mill all by himself. Yeah. So, you know, did lots of things like that. And so, yes, librarians can fit. Yes. No, and I didn't mean they can't. I meant the the particular job as we know it, I mean, in some ways you got the best skills. You know, you know how to help people get resources. So, Jose, I was going to let you talk for a second, but you disappeared. One of our college students, graduates, who now uh, works for us, the Black Lives Matter, he disappeared. He must have known I was going to call on him. Is he still there? He's still there. He, I just, he just ran away. <laughs> he must have known. I should... Uh, Text them, get your ass back here, man. Uh, is he still there? Is the Jose Rodriguez still? Yeah, yeah. It, he left us. So, all right. So I thank you. I hope this was worthwhile for people. I thank you for doing another goddamn Zoom where we're all Zoomed out. Um, and anyone can write me and you know, for any kind of information, and I will uh, try to respond to help in some way. I'll send the big picture thing so you could join any of our, it's all free this summer, um, or uh, that's it. So, Dennis, Dennis, love you. Thanks for doing this. We just got to put up a couple slides to remind people what's coming up. Really appreciate it. We need to stay in touch. I'll, maybe I'll do some teaching for you in the fall. Uh, um, great. Peace, Thank everybody. You, my friend. I love you. Thanks bye for bye. all your hard work. Thanks. So, as Dennis is, is logging off, we just want to remind people that Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 um, p.m. Eastern Time, Conrad Wolfram will be joining us from England. He's the author of the new book, The Maths Fix. Um, he's not only got a rather coherent argument for the need for reinventing math education, but actually provides policy and practical tips for doing so. And he'll be coming to us from Oxford. I hope you'll be able to join us Tuesday morning. And and then again, um, we, we have your email addresses. If we continue doing this, we'll keep you posted. And if you'd like to make a contribution to, to help sustain this, as well as read more about Dennis Lipke's um, work, um, feel free to follow one of these links.
again, thanks, folks, for the work that you do. Hope you're going to get some time for some peace and, and relaxation this summer, wherever you happen to be curled up in a fetal position in your bunker. Um, and hope that a lot of you will be able to join us Tuesday morning for our conversation with Conrad Wolfram. Thanks again to Dennis Litke for sharing his time with us and for all of you for being here. I will see you shortly. We hope you enjoyed this Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Our theme music is Jazz Impromptu by Brian Lynch, holisticmusicworks.com. For podcasts and additional inspiration, check out our website, live.constructingmodernknowledge.com. Be sure to visit cmkpress.com. That's cmkpress.com for books by creative educators for creative educators.